Welcome to Health Virtually Uncensored with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series brought to you by the American Telemedicine Association, the only organization completely focused on advancing telehealth. Join Dr. Kavidar in candid conversations with the leaders and innovators offering real-world perspectives and practical knowledge to impact change in our current healthcare environment. Today's guest is Dr. Ativ Marotra, professor in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. This episode is made possible by Foley and Lardner's Healthcare and Life Sciences Sector Team, driving tomorrow's advances in the healthcare and life sciences ecosystems with their more than 200 dedicated attorneys in 25 offices across the country, helping clients grow and empowering their business strategies to position them for success today and in the future. In the last year, the use of telemedicine, which skyrocketed during the beginning of the pandemic, declined and seems to be leveling off. Not quite to pre-pandemic levels, by some estimates, it's now about 5.5% of at least healthcare insurance claims. So in many regards, to see this number go down and seem to plateau has, has been disappointing to some, those of us that are the telehealth evangelists. Maybe not surprising. Let's let the rest of the world certainly mirrors this, but as COVID and the public health emergency recedes, people seem to be returning to old habits. There's more meetings in personnel, less Zoom meetings. That's to be expected, but still a little bit disappointing for some of us. We've now had three years of heightened experiences with telehealth and virtual care. What do we know now? And, and what do we still not know? Have perspectives changed among patients and clinicians, among payers and regulators. We know telemedicine shouldn't be 100% of healthcare, but what would we be happy with and what exactly is the goal and what do we still have to prove? I'm Joe Kavidar, and this is the American Telemedicine podcast series, Health Virtually Uncensored. Every month, I welcome guests to talk about critical and real-world issues relating to the digital transformation of health. And I couldn't ask for a better guest to discuss these topics with me today than Dr. Ativ Marotra. Dr. Marotra is a professor at the Harvard Medical School in the Department of Healthcare Policy. Much of his research is focused on delivery innovations, including retail clinics, e-visits, and telemedicine, including their impact on quality, cost, and access to healthcare. Now, I consider Ativ to be the voice of truth in an industry that has, let's face it, been a bit overhyped at times. So to cover these really interesting questions at a really interesting time in history, I'm thrilled to have Ativ join me today. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm going to dive right in because I know our listeners want us to, to solve the world's problems here. So the, the first question I have for you is this, this lingering perception, which actually is not new to, to post-pandemic at all, but follows me from my early days and in innovating in this almost three decades ago at the MGH. And that is that telehealth is somehow not as good as in-person care and maybe even second class. You know, we've had this now three-year experiment and people seem to be happy with it for certain things. What do we still have to show if we want telehealth to be truly viewed as health? What's your opinion of where we need to really tighten up and, and what place will it play? Well, Joe, I think you've really hit your na- uh, hit the nail on us. I think a really important issue. 
I want to build off your comments, your introductory comments, and then get right to your question, which is a colleague of mine who has been in the telemedicine space for some time made a comment that the great telemedicine experiment failed. And what he meant by that was there was had been a perception for so long that if we just get patients and doctors to try it, they'll love it and they'll just keep on using it. And early on in the pandemic, the patients and doctors tried it. And then, but as you've described, there's been this dramatic decline in the use of telemedicine since its original peak. And so how do we square that with this idea and, you know, his frustration, at least in some ways that he'd been begging people to try it and then they didn't like it as much as they did, uh, as he had hoped. And I think that is reflected in the data. And I think you hit that just to emphasize the points again, is that when we ask patients and doctors, what do you think of telemedicine? They're like, oh God, we're so thankful that was available to us and we're really happy and we want it to be a critical part of what we provide. But when we ask patients and doctors, do you think that you get the same quality of care at a telehealth visit in broad terms? And I know overgeneralizing, they say no. They, they just don't, they have this lingering concern that it's not as high quality. So when you ask that question, I feel like the answer to that is one of those amorphous, we have, if telemedicine, it, you describe it as a second-class citizen, it is the perception of those who try it. And so the question is, how do you change that perception? Some of that is going to be data and analyses, just, you know, Doctors seen in, I don't know, your field, dermatology or another field like, I don't know, reproductive endocrinology, showing data, showing that people are getting better outcomes or similar outcomes with telemedicine. And I think some of it is time, just even though it's been a couple of years, you know, none of us change that as quickly as we want. And I also think there is an element of this, which is that we also have to recognize, and you had alluded to it, that telemedicine in many circumstances may not be as good as an in-person visit. So the perception is true or the perception reflects reality. And I think there it raises the question of what changes to telemedicine visits, let's say video telemedicine visits have to happen so that the patient and the physician perceive that the quality is better. And so those are a, a smorgasbord of different ideas or thoughts I had when related to this second class citizen question. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. And again, we're we're in agreement here. I tell a story sometimes when I'm when I'm out on the stump of a personal friend of mine who dialed into a video visit, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. And the doctor was, she had for this uh, tele visit was sitting on the beach with no shirt on. And I think that I always tell that story because if we as providers don't take it seriously, how can we expect patients to? That person would never show up, I don't think anyway, in the office without a shirt on. So there's there's two sides to it. And, and of course, it, as you say, it's it's deeper than that. There's There's more about quality, there's more about outcomes, but I think at a fundamental level, if people don't take it seriously, it's it's hard. And that that for, for your evangelist friend and and me as a fellow evangelist, that was sort of a I think a hard uh, pill to swallow. But I, I want to dive into something that you've pointed out before, and maybe maybe an elephant in the room here, and that's cost. You've pointed out that one of the challenges around expanding telemedicine is cost, or I could reframe it as the fear of overuse and higher spending as compared to in-person care. This notion that because you make something easy, there's maybe overutilization. 
Now, I think there are other parallels in this idea of making something easy and 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 then worrying about it. Med adherence is another one that we've seen come and go. So that isn't such a new thing. But our health plan colleagues seem to be a little bit spooked about all this. And there's a lot of talk about, well, we'll let you do this telehealth, but we're not going to pay as much for it. So I know you can't look at spending in isolation because, uh, you know, spending somewhere might reduce spending somewhere else. So that's just a lot of what's going on in my head. And I'm really curious what you think the right way to sort this whole overutilization spending thing out is and what's your perspective on it? Yeah, I think it does emphasize, you know, if I could redo history or how telemedicine started, I would go back and start remove the narrative that telemedicine is about reducing spending and telemedicine is a lot cheaper and it's going to save the healthcare system a lot of money. And the reason I think that that I would remove that narrative is because that's an unbelievably high bar to reach in healthcare. There is almost nothing that we do in healthcare that reduces spending, maybe flu shots, but most <laughs> preventive care services like mammograms and colonoscopies, they increase healthcare spending, taking your medications and going for a doctor's visit appropriately. So for diabetes and all those things, they increase healthcare spending. So almost nothing decreases healthcare spending. And so it's a very high bar to reach. And the real question that if I'm a pharmaceutical company or if I'm a new device manufacturer, I never ask the question, is my new device saving money? It's rather, am I improving health at a reasonable cost, the value of what I provide? And that's how the whole paradigm and evaluation occurs. And then that assessment is made. And then we decide whether we cover something or not. And because that narrative has been there for so long, it's really hard to remove it. And I hear a lot of telemedicine evangelists keep on saying this whole thing, that telemedicine is going to save money. It's just, again, I'd love to believe it. We're always looking for stuff to reduce healthcare spending, but it's just hard for me to see how that's really going to be plausible. Yeah. So on the cost issue, my view is then because it's the typical thing in healthcare, I'm almost expecting healthcare spending to go up maybe by, you know, and it really matters. Is it a little bit or a lot and how much benefit is there? And if we find, so that's where, where my head is in this space, which is an almost an expectation that it's going to increase healthcare spending because almost everything does. And then trying to document the clinical benefits. And if you can document the clinical benefits and it's a reasonable cost, then cover it. But stop, get away from this narrative that uh, telemedicine is about decreasing spending. And if I could just stick with my little, this is my little sensitive top issue here. And so I, I'm sorry, my little pet peeve here. So uh, just to go on that, I mean, in some ways, telemedicine evangelists have been really talking with from both sides of their mouth. On one hand, telemedicine is going to save money. On the other hand, it's going to improve access to care. Well, how the hell is it going to improve access to care? It has to, that means more people will get care. And that means it's going to increase spending. And we should celebrate that, not kind of chase our tail and say, oh yeah, but it decreases spending. So that's just my two cents on this particular issue. I, I think that's well said. You know, the one only caveat I can really add, and I'm not sure that this just maybe muddies the water further, but there is, of course, I, I used to, let's say it this way, I've, I've for years talked about one-to-many models of care, how a video call is 
is no more efficient than being in the office for at least for the provider. It might be for the patient because they don't have to drive somewhere. Whereas something like a chatbot or a asynchronous visit or a remote monitoring solution could have the potential to do to spread that provider around a larger population. Again, as to, we're, we're not disagreeing, we, we've yet to prove that those technologies, when properly used, might lower costs. But I hold out some hope that they might just by the very nature of the way they work. And the reason that so many other businesses, whether it's your uh, tech support at Apple or when you when you need something done from Amazon, you get you get a you get an asynchronous or a robot first in those situations. So anyway, that's just my one maybe caveat to, to what you said. It's a very fair point. And I do think that this one aspect of telemedicine that does, I feel like hasn't gotten the attention that it should, is this whole efficiency aspect of it. If you can generate telemedicine models, which can allow a single clinician to manage 2x, 3x patients, then all of a sudden you can start to reduce healthcare spending in a way that previously was not possible. And the efficiency gain aspect of this is so, so critical. And two parts of that, if you don't mind, uh, the fr- uh, one is when we, you, you, I think you rightfully said that the video visit may not take as much time. It may take a similar amount of time, excuse me. But if the physician or other clinician can manage, do this from home, and squeeze in visits, you know, when kids are at school or after hours, after dinner for all of a sudden you can, same clinician can start providing more care. And therefore this would help some of the productivity problems we have in the U S healthcare system. So that's one thing I don't know has gotten a lot of attention. And the second one is going to back to the efficiency side. And I think of models of the asynchronous telemedicine visits that the hymns, the hers, the lemonades, others are providing where they can manage a, a lot more visits per hour than uh, a clinician who's seen people in person. And there's a good example of where because they can manage care more patients in an hour, they can drop drop the price point and make it a cash only business and still make money. And so I do think I just wanted to, you know, illustrate with two points related to that, which I think are just so critical related to spending. Yes, yes. So if we both agree that that we shouldn't be making silly claims about cost reduction, sometimes again, I I, I am I've been at this three decades, sort of like pushing the boulder up the hill, and sometimes I feel like people think that telehealth or or they demand that it be just better in all ways. It has to be cheaper. It has to be more effective. It has to be more patient-friendly. Maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe we look at the way we deliver care since, since Hippocrates and say, look, that's pretty good. So why are you throwing this new technology at us? I'm not sure, but I my question for you after all that is what, what are the metrics you think we should focus on? And I know you may have answered some of this before, but just run, run them again for us quickly. You are listening to Health Virtually Uncensored with Dr. Joe Kavidar, brought to you by the American Telemedicine Association. This episode is made possible by Foley and Lardner's Healthcare and Life Sciences Sector Team. You know, the cheaper part we've already discussed, the patient friendliness component, I think is sort of, I don't think anyone needs to really prove that aspect of it, the convenience. And so it really, for me, means that using data to demonstrate the tele, uh, a telemedicine improves the uh, care. 
and at what cost? That's kind of the, just that value is what I want. Mm-hmm. So just as we would, I, I guess I, I go back to pharma, we'll say that a new drug for, I don't know, pancreatic cancer improves quality of life and extends life by X amount and the drug costs this much. And so therefore we can say their cost effectiveness is this. I would ask the same kind of way of looking at telemedicine. I would also in that just recognize that we can't, We the one nuance that I would emphasize, and I, I think reflects the reality of how care is provided, that except for telemedicine or virtual only companies, often this is a hybrid model. So it isn't that I want to compare telemedicine versus in-person care, rather it's a clinician who provides I don't know, 90% tele, 10% in-person versus a clinician who's doing only in-person. Because it's rare to find that they're just, a clinician is only using telemedicine. And so when we do those comparisons, we often have to compare the how much telemedicine you're using, not yes, no, a binary question. Yeah, yeah, well stated, well stated. All right, I'm going to wade into another complicated issue because I'm on a roll here, and that's behavioral health, telehealth. You know, it seems that many, of it, well, I'll say it this way. When I started out saying that 5 to 6% of claims these days are telehealth, 67% of that is behavioral health. So it really does seem to have caught on. The, the easy thing that I often say to make that case is, well, the physical exam is talking to the patient, and you can do that quite well over video. and there's probably maybe, I don't know, no other aspect right now of healthcare delivery that we would all maybe agree needs more access than behavioral health. So it does seem to be catching on. The flip side is, and to your point about, you mentioned row hymns, et cetera, there are a couple of behavioral health telehealth companies that seem to have gotten a bit out over their skis, especially with things like marketing on TikTok and that re- resulted in a really strong Last, uh, just about a year ago, just a a hammering, particularly from the Wall Street Journal, about this idea. And it would always come out as the person had a telemedicine prescription and then this bad thing happened to them. So that's probably not helping us either. And the question is kind of vague, I admit, but how do we help? You know, there's two questions there. How how can you take something like the beauty, really, of a telebehavioral health and then scale it? And not scale it and not lose kind of that goodness, uh, but scale it and, again, market on TikTok and stuff like that. And how do we get really back some confidence in consumers? I think part of what has scared them away has been stories like that in the press. Yeah. So first of all, I do think that those companies and those examples have really had a huge impact above and beyond, you know, their real reach in the U.S. population because it confirmed a narrative that people were worried about. And so therefore, because they were worried about this narrative, they jumped on the example that proved that narrative when I would think that those companies do not represent the uh, the norm of what the care is provided. But unfortunately, when I talk to policymakers, they just go right to there. I think the yeah. second one that I would say is that I've heard some in the telehealth community kind of just deny, oh, it's, it's the exception or whatever. I think we have to face up that this is the reality that there are going to be bad actors and their reforms need to be needed. So instead of just saying, oh, it's just, there are just a couple of them, let's not worry about it. I think there has to be a much broader embrace to say, look, yes, not everyone's like that, but the kind of setup that we have right now 
where, and in particular, the VCs that are really pushing on these companies to make money as quickly as possible, to grow as rapidly as possible, are going to create the incentives that lead to those bad actors, because that's what they need to show. And those the VCs are really understandably, because that's how their model is with other areas of, of investments, is they want to see that rapid growth. And again, that creates incentives. And so organizations like the American Telemedicine Association and others, to the degree that they can be that countervailing force and say, look, we have to be just, I don't know how the best way to do that is just to really be speak to the investor community, because this is a real problem. The third is, is there a way that regulations or accreditation can be a mechanism to try to ensure quality? And then the last piece I would say is right now we have a problem with these telemedicine companies. And the problem that I perceive is, is that they have relatively poor incentive structures to actually evaluate the care that they're providing, how the care, whether the model that they are providing is leading to better care or hurting people. The conversation that I often have, and please push back, Joe, if you disagree, you've worked with a lot of companies is they have a great idea and a great premise for a company and a care model. They go out there and they start taking care of patients and they're growing, maybe sometimes not as quickly as they want, but they're growing. And then they come to the question of whether they should do rigorous research. And I mean rigorous research to evaluate the care they're providing and whether they're improving care or not. So if we add this on top of, I don't know, patients with irritable bowel syndrome and who are suffering, and we add this telemedicine option, do they let get better care? And the first answer that I get from companies is yes, we would love that. Oh my gosh, it'd be so awesome if we have that model and we show that evidence, then we can grow that much faster. And so there's often enthusiasm, but then others go and say, well, and then I like to push like, what if you don't find that it's a positive benefit? And they're like, oh, our company. <laughs> and then almost invariably at the end, the answer is, oh, we neither have the resources and it's too high risk for us. We're not going to pursue that. Yeah, I mean, I, I the, a, the other thing yeah. that I often say is that a lot of these people are tech entrepreneurs who had a healthcare problem and thought, well, I can solve that. How hard can it be? And then they take that sort of break things mentality into the healthcare space and that can lead to some of these challenges as well. And I just think that that incentive structure is obviously very problematic and we, how do we create the regulatory framework that that company doesn't have a choice? They have to, yeah. right? That they're providing the care and improving outcomes. And that's going to be very helpful in addressing those examples that you provided, but overall, just generally improving this space. Because right now, any, some very thoughtful, amazing clinicians who are developing these new models or putting them out there. But then you have some rogue people who are about making a buck or really have no idea what the hell they're doing are out there delivering care. And for all I know, they're providing bad care. And I get asked, and I don't know if you have the same frustration, Joe, but I'm often asked, all these behavioral health companies, do they work? Do they not work? And who's better and who's uh, not doing well? And I can't answer that question. And that bothers yeah. me. 
quite a bit. Yeah, well said. Actually, a great segue into my my last question. I, I don't want to keep you longer than than we need to today. It's it's been enormous, and I, I know our listeners are going to just absolutely love this. But I, as I said earlier, I consider your position to be unique, and we we in the industry all owe you a gratitude a debt of gratitude for being so sort of objective and data driven. So with with as as we close out, what tell me what you think is is your call to action for the industry and then for the ATA? It's a good question, and I guess I might, at the risk of just repeating myself, just try to emphasize some of the points I just made, which is the industry as a whole, as well as the ATA, to lead that industry, which is to say that we cannot. We've gone through. Hey, we're brand new. We're kind of just upstarts. This is an established component of care, and it is not a viable strategy to just simply say that just believe us, the face validity, this seems to work, that we're providing high quality care, that we need evidence. And how do we create the incentive structures and not to fight regulations, but to maybe even support regulations that really emphasize that? I might give an example, setting aside from just telemedicine or video visits, but these, you had talked about chatbots earlier. You know, there's a number of these companies that provide symptom checkers or websites or apps that you can use that you can put in your symptoms and they'll give you a potential list of diagnosis and a triage decision. And right now we're playing a game, right? You go onto these websites and they'll give you medical advice and then say a little big disclaimer that the lawyers put on there. We're not giving you medical advice and somehow that's okay. (laughs) And, you know, the European Union has been pushing back and saying, look, no, we need to start creating a bar so that you have to demonstrate that your new fancy chatbot slash symptom checker, AI, machine learning, whatever buzzwords you want to throw in there is actually providing a reasonable level of advice. And then that's going to be before we'll allow you to provide that to people in the European Union. I think in the US, we need a similar kind of strategy for symptom checkers, but just in general. And so that'd be really my call to action right now, because again, that silliness of I'm going to provide you medical advice, but I'm going to say I'm not or I'm going to choose behavioral health treatment, but use a coach and say, that's not real medical care and somehow skirt rules. It's just not a viable long-term solution. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And and it's been so much fun. I'm sure we could do this for for hours on end. We're going to wrap up now. So I I know our listeners are going to want to find uh, you online, learn more about your work. What's the best way to find you online? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Tell, Tell people where they can find your work. Yeah. So if you, first of all, as an academic, Everything is on online. So uh, <laughs> I am on social media. They don't maybe post as much as I want, but I am on Twitter, at Thievem, A-T-E, my first name in the letter M, A-T-E-E-V-M. But I also maybe more substantively, if you go to, you just type in Harvard Scholar and my last name, you'll find my website, which has a lot of the research that we've done in this space, and that's easily accessible. And we'll post all that in our show notes as well. So Thanks, uh, Atib Marotra, for joining me today. Thanks for you all for listening. If you like this episode, please take a moment to, out of your busy day, to rate, review the podcast, subscribe. If you subscribe, you don't have to think about it. The next time you're, we get someone amazing like Atib on the program, it just pops into your inbox. And please, again, support the podcast, share it with others, and we appreciate all your loyalty as listeners as well. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This is the health 
virtually uncensored podcast from the American Telemedicine Association. I'm Joe Kavidar, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to Health Virtually Uncensored with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series by the American Telemedicine Association. To engage with others and learn more about this topic, go to americantelemed.org. If you like this episode or know someone who does, please share or subscribe.